0: Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode.
1: All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tim Rippa. It's uh, Monday, February 7th, 2022. We're at Angel Face in Portland. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, first, biggest question to get started is why wine?
0: Why wine? Um, wine became a passion of mine 25 years ago, and it was an unexpected turn of events where I was a snowboard guy in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and happened to sublease a room from a gentleman who turned out to be a master sommelier and he had two restaurants and a wine shop and I thought it was the weirdest thing ever. And I was like, what's your deal? Why do you like this so much? And over the course of us living together, he started handing me books and pouring me wine and talking to me about wine and he taught me a ton. And so that really got the hook in me. And then my path from there has just, um, you know, continued and furthered and had a lot of evolutions
1: since then, obviously, Mm. because it's been 20 plus years, so. At the time, what was it for you that was the first interest? Was Was it the wine itself, or was it more learning about the wine? It really, that's a great
0: question. It was learning about the culture of wine, you know? So coming from the sommelier world, he was broad in terms of his knowledge base, And so there was so much history and so much culture and so much just to learn. And it had been a little while since I'd been out of school and all of a sudden I found myself absorbed in reading about regions and grape varietals and styles of wine. And from there he kind of mentored me as well as a whole group of people. So I started working in his bottle shop and then in a restaurant and he mentored this whole group of young people from all three of the establishments into the Quartermaster Sommeliers program. And so we had this almost family to study wine, talk about wine, taste wine, and it became a really an amazing passion and community. Mm-hmm. So,
1: well, let's back up a little bit and talk about life before wine a little bit. You yeah. mentioned being in Jackson Hole. Tell us about kind of uh, where you are born, yeah. you're raised, and then what you did after high school. So
0: I'm an East Coaster. Um, But Oregon is definitely home, and so I grew up, I was raised in a place called Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, I moved from there to go to college up at the University of Vermont, which is stunning, and I love Burlington, Um, and I got into snowboarding there, and while I was there, I visited Jackson Hole, and quickly decided I would move there as soon as possible, so as soon as I graduated college, I moved to Jackson Hole, Um, and... Yeah, at the time I was just doing landscaping and whatever type of work I could do to make ends meet. And then kind of found this wine bug and got into restaurants and and wine. And from there, Jackson Hole, I was there five years and moved out to Bend from there in 2001, September eleventh two 2001. So I won't forget that date. And I stayed in Bend for five years and then moved to McMinnville and was there for five years. Um, And then McMinnville, as we chatted before this video, um, (laughs) for me at the time it was just a little too small and quaint and I was coming to Portland a lot to go to restaurants and shows and decided to move to Portland. And then I realized, at the time I was working in McMinnville, in Carleton to be specific, I couldn't handle the commute down to the valley every day, and so I uh, ended up changing my position in the wine world, in the industry, and started working for distributors up here. And then I've been doing that ever since, so that's the last 11 years.
1: So you mentioned uh, one kind of strong influence on your wine life that just kind of brings you into wine. So as you started to learn about wine, as you started to drink wine and appreciate wine, uh, the first step was bottle shop is that right correct so tell me yeah. tell me about that experience
0: but. so it was fun because like I said the gentleman that ran it his name was Ken Fredrickson and um, he was a master sommelier. and he took it very seriously and had this amazing selection in a retail shop adjacent to it he had kind of an Asian fusion wine bar called koshu and so it was the Jackson Hall wine company at the time and um, It allowed me and my peers to really dig into a little bit of everything you know and to this day retail is great for that where there's such an assortment and and prices styles regions varietals what-have-you that it allows you the opportunity to explore the world of wine and being able to do that in a community like I had that we were all studying and kind of geeking out on the technical and book side of things um, that's kind of what really sparked it all for me because there's just so much to learn, you know. So.
1: I'm curious about that, that process of learning, to going, coming in with, with no real knowledge and, and then just being kind of dumped into it. Yeah. What's the process like for you? What, was, what did you find was the best way to learn it, and how long did it take you to start to gather that?
0: I mean, I think, honestly, if there was like wine for dummies at the time, that's probably what I, what I would have started with. Um, We started with the Kevin Zarelli, um, Windows on the World of Wine um, book, and then got into the Culinary Institute and all different kind of reference books. And it was a lot. And honestly, it wasn't um, until I've had years and years and years in the industry, and as you know, first-hand experience goes a lot longer than book knowledge, in my humble opinion. And so... As I kept gaining experience, whether it was with customers retail or with wine and food pairings in the restaurant world, or whether it was farming and winemaking in the valley, or now working with international um, producers, you gain a lot more first-hand experience and it kind of changes the narrative, changes the story and how you view things. Um, at least that's what I've noticed with my evolution in the industry. So.
1: So, uh, uh, with, the, with the early wines you were learning, uh, was there a specific region that you found yourself drawn to, or sort of a kind of wine?
0: I'm a little embarrassed to tell you, <laughs> and, and to have it on being recorded, but, um, you know, back then was Australia's heyday, and so wineries like Torbreck and Noon, and who else am I thinking of, the Lewin Estate, and they were, I was really enamored with all of those wines. And maybe it was also my palate at the time wasn't um, as evolved as I'd like to think it is now. And so the wines were generous. Um, They were easy to kind of wrap your head around, if you will. Lewin Estate, on the other hand, you know, was a lot of white wines, but um, still very kind of easy to wrap your head around. Like everything was right there for you. So,
1: Was there a... Was there a, an AHA wine for you? Yeah,
0: I mean, Torbreck. period. The Torbreck wines were just absolutely amazing at the time. Um, I haven't had them in some time, so I can't speak to them now. Um, but again, that speaks to my palate at the time. But I just couldn't get enough of those wines across the board, everything from Juvenile to RunRig and everything in between. Um, you know playing with Rhone varietals and and a little bit of VNA and with your Syrah and what have you it just kind of opened my eyes to the layers and depth that you can get into you know um whether it was an aha wine I'm not sure but it was something that I grabbed onto you know um so yeah
1: Tell me about interacting with customers at that point in your, in your life. What, what, what did you find from the wine world in terms of what their expectations were and what you kind of got from them as well? Well,
0: it's, I would say it's more the latter than the former, um, as I was kind of a blank slate, if you will. And so I was learning with customers and from customers. And so it was a very um, hands-on, kind of ground-up way to figure out what was what, what people were enjoying and why. That's a big question, right? Um, why do you like that bottle of wine? And and so we had customers that would come in that you would know and they would be really knowledgeable. And then we had people that were like, we don't know anything about wine. And so it was a little all over, all over the board. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun to interact because I think it was a little bit of both of what you're saying where I found as I was learning, I was able to offer things that people, you know, you get into that kind of geeky book knowledge side of things and you end up with knowledge that people may or may not want to hear. But on the flip side of that, learning what people like and why and why it resonates with them was also really great information for me to understand.
1: Why is an interesting question. I want to come back to it a little bit later as we get kind of more into your career. But I'm curious at that point, did you start to determine sort of patterns for why people like what they liked or why they picked what they picked?
0: No, I think for me, it was more, I was learning so much about wine at the time that I was learning how different everything could be. And so when you talk to a customer, it's all subjective, right? And so you really need to listen to your customer and then understand where to bring them and why you're doing that, right? And so someone might not be familiar with, let's say White Bordeaux, but they love Sauvignon Blanc and you have the opportunity to kind of introduce them to something new. Um, That's something I've always really appreciated is the ability to introduce people to something, Mm -hmm. Um, that education side, because so many of us as consumers have an experience with a bottle of wine that we might not know anything about. And when you're able to dig into that and have a little bit more behind it and share that with people, it kind of changes the experience, you know?
1: Did you find certain parts of the educational experience that, were, that resonated more, certain parts of what you were telling people that resonated more with them than others?
0: I mean, I think, honestly, at the time, this doesn't have much to do with Oregon wine, but at the time, informing people of how Europe labels their wines, a lot of people don't know that Bordeaux is going to be a Cab or Merlot-based blend, or that the Rhone or Southern Rhone is going to be a Grenache-based wine or that Burgundy is more often than not going to be Chardonnay or Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of, I watch people's like eyes open, just like, oh, I had no idea. It doesn't say a Chardonnay on it, and so I never would have known that it was a Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a trivial but important learning curve for me, just bringing what was unfamiliar to people and kind of making it more familiar, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Did you have uh, at that point? Did, did was Oregon wine even on your radar, or at what point did that happen? No,
0: um, Oregon wine really got onto my radar when I moved to Bend in two thousand one, and initially I was working a little retail shop, but then I started running this wine program for a phenomenal restaurant that unfortunately no longer exists. It was called Miranda in downtown Bend, and obviously Oregon wine is a big part of any or most programs here in the state and so we had an extensive Oregon program and at the time again like everything's so time-based but producers like Patty Green and Mike Etzel and Ken Wright and Steve Dorner and a lot of the flagship um, Oregon wines from the late 90s to early 2000s were represented and that's kind of how I got to know the wines, but also the proximity of Bend to the Valley, even though it's, you know, three hours or whatever it might be, it was close enough that wineries would come to Bend to sell their wines. And so having the opportunity to meet a lot of these people, you know, whether it's Barnaby and Olga or Dick Shea or David Polite, or, you know, all all these people would come over and you get to hear their firsthand Stories and experience, and um, it again gives you something to provide to customers that they might not always be aware of. So,
1: I felt really, really lucky to have that experience. At that point, you 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 developed you had some time to kind of develop a palate, develop opinions about wine, and uh, what were your first impressions of Oregon wine?
0: Um, Honestly, there's still a lot of like Pinot Noir can be expressed in so many different ways, right? And so depending on where the fruit was coming from or whose hand was handling it, um, it was pretty fun. I I embraced that. Um, I don't want to say variability because that sounds like a negative term to me. But I embraced the disparity in the styles of wine. Like when you look at Teutonic Wine Company's Pinot Noir and it's light and fresh. And then you have Ken who likes to have a little bit richer, denser, um, in general, again generalizations, um, profile depending on where the fruit is from, um, I really embraced that. Like, it was fun to have a selection where you have so many different styles and so many different expressions of Pinot Noir in particular. So.
1: What about your first impressions of the, of the industry itself? What, what did the industry look like to you in 2001, in an interesting time to enter it. Yeah. So, you're meeting all the people, you're, you're seeing kind of the industry grow. What were your kind of impressions of what it looked like? It was really
0: a, a pretty small community at the time. And I know it was, you know, 25, 30 years into to everything, but it was still a small community and there was a lot of collaboration. And maybe I learned more about that when I moved over to the valley and got to kind of be a part of that and witness that firsthand. Um, but it was remarkable to see how much people not collaborated per se, but supported each other and trying to promote Oregon wine as a whole and, um, and the future of how it was going to develop, you know? So that, that was kind of my first impression was like, wow, this is a small tight knit community and it's pretty remarkable to see people taking the risks they're taking, making the decisions they're making. Um, you know, a lot of this was still, I don't want to say infancy, but if you look at the history of winemaking in Europe versus the history of winemaking here, we are in our infancy still, you know, it's a very developmental stage. And back then, you know, 20 years ago, it was, uh, similarly, so more.
1: (laughs) You mentioned, uh, I like the point you have about kind of risks taking and decisions being made. At that time, did, uh... Did it feel like a high-risk kind of thing or a, or a lot of hard decisions being made in, in the industry?
0: Well, I think um, as I learned more, I was able to grasp the concept that wine, winemaking, farming is such a long-term... Um, what's the word? Like, situation or investment or... There's no easy... Um, Path in terms of planting a vineyard, doing the farming, investing in equipment, investing in barrels, buying whatever you're doing, buying fruit if you're, you know, just you don't have your own vineyards. That's all a lot of risk and there's no guarantees. And so, for instance, a lot of the pioneers that planted around here and people that are still planting around here, I have nothing but like the utmost respect because those are big decisions with long term consequences, you know, and hopefully they're for the better but they're not always, and so that was kind of uh, eye-opening for me when I talk about risk. You know, it was, um, The long-term side of, of what you're doing is pretty remarkable.
1: We'll talk about building a wine list, because we've, we've talked about people in the industry who have built wine lists as part of their career, and yeah. I'm, always, I'm always very curious to see the methodology and the philosophy behind it. So tell me about that the work the, in, in bed uh, Miranda. Miranda, thank you. Yeah. Uh, tell me about building a wine list. Uh, what, 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 what in your mind had to be there, what were you trying to express with it, and, and how did you build it?
0: So Miranda um, had an extensive menu, I would say, the food, I don't know how I'd describe the food, but it had kind of a European um, foundation to it. And basically we wanted wines that were going to be great with food, A. Okay? On the Oregon side of things, we wanted wines that were a great representation of what people were doing here. And then throughout the list, I always wanted to make sure there was diversity and balance, if that makes sense. Those are two really important things. Um, And so when I say that, it's in terms of style, it's in terms of varietals, it's in terms of price points and regions. Like there's a lot that goes into it. But the wines needed to fit and needed to resonate for a particular reason, um, whatever that might be. And so it was a lot of fun. I, um, the gentleman I worked in conjunction with, his name was Michael Denton, and um, he kind of handed it over to me. We built it together and then he handed it over to me. And it was really um, an ambitious program, especially at the time, you know, and and it was, yeah. Remarkable, fun, fun experience. So, And that also led me, that part of my job, building the list, led me to a lot of educational things, educating staff, or me going over to the valley to get some firsthand experience with wineries, or taking staff to the valley, and it kind of become, became like this multi-dimensional role, so it wasn't just like building a static list so much as like having this interactive, um, role with it, whether it's with staff, or with producers, or both. Mm-hmm. So,
1: You mentioned diversity and balance, which I think is, is something we hear a lot in that. And to you, when you hear about diversity and balance, uh, are you looking, do you find yourself, I need a wine that fits this space, let's go out and find it? Or do you find yourself, I love this wine, how does it fit into my list? Um, it's a little bit of both,
0: to be honest. I feel like that's kind of the easy way out on that answer but it's definitely, um, you know, you would be looking for particular wines because you want to represent a region or a style or what have you. And then at the same time, I was tasting a lot, you know, three days a week or so with, with distributors. And so then you're looking at wines from the opposite angle. You know, you're looking at your firsthand experience and will this wine work for my customers? Will my staff get excited about this? Well does it, do I have room for it? You know, like all, all of the variables that go into that. So it's a little bit of both, I would say. But that's a great question,
1: yeah. What about when it comes to to the producers themselves? Obviously, you're working with distributors more often than not, so you're mm-hmm. not necessarily talking to the producer themselves. Mm-hmm. But were there people you, did you find yourself, I, I need to represent this person, or this, this, or I don't want to represent this person? Or did you find yourself kind of like, did personality play a role in the list you're building? For sure,
0: for sure. Because, I mean, I think that goes into what's in a bottle of wine. You know who you support, how you support them and why, that's all critical that being said it was a pretty extensive program and like you said I was buying a lot of it from distributors and so there wasn't a lot there wasn't a ton of the first hand experience but you know some of my distributors became great friends of mine as well and so we had great relationships and so that was a part of it as well Um, Ken Palo when he was with Vondegaard at the time um, was a He still is a good friend and he also you know was much more knowledgeable than I was um, period, probably still is. And so it was great to learn with him, to taste with him and and, you know then support the wines and producers that came through him. Um, And it kind of went with everybody right? Like the, the winemakers that took the time to come over here and or excuse me to bend, the winemakers that made that trip and said hey we want to meet with you, and that meant a lot, and it goes a long way. And then you have that first-hand, map, the first-hand experience, and
1: yeah. When it came time, you mentioned part of your role obviously was to educate the people working for you and the yeah. servers. And so, tell me about that. What what was important to educate people on, and, and what did you find sold wine? How, how did you sell wine?
0: I mean, for me again, reiterating what I said earlier, I just love introducing people to something new, and. At the time, the staff was knowledgeable, but everyone was also kind of hungry for more knowledge. And so it was a great team of people that, you know, there was a core group of maybe four or five that were really vested in learning. And, you know, they looked at it, well, passionately, but also as their job. And they're gonna be good at their job no matter what they're doing. And so they really dove into it and we had a great Again, you get into like the tasting group scenario and studying a region studying a region for a given point in time and then going over that, and um, it really resonated with a number of people. Um, I was really fortunate. One of the women who was a server that I got to work with and in, endeavor and in wine with was a woman named Dana Frank, who now owns Bar Norman and uh she's a great friend and it's been remarkable to see what she has done with her wine knowledge and the professional that she's become and um you know just people like that scenarios like that mean the world as far as I'm concerned where you have someone that endeavors to dig deeper into whatever they're doing and do it passionately and then it shows through you know
1: about from the customer side, obviously you're, you, get, you, get, you get first-hand experience with wine customers in 2001. I'm, I'm curious, what, where, where was your clientele in terms of wine appreciation, wine knowledge, wine desire? Were you doing a lot of educating of them or were, you know, where, where were they in, in terms of...
0: It was definitely all over the board, you know, obviously we would have some guests that were big collectors and knew what they wanted and why. And then we would have people that thought, you know, Chacolina is the most random thing in the world, but it's delicious and now I love it. Or, you know, Albariño, what's that? Or, and so you still have a little bit of that balance of, there's plenty of clientele where you're introducing new things to people. And it was nice to have some liberty in, in the program to kind of get outside the box a little bit. So you have some stuff that was so unique that you're really introducing it to both servers and customers. But then also, again, having kind of the classic um, wines accessible and available that you could stand behind knowing that I'm going to put this bottle in front of somebody and they're going to have a great experience with it, you know?
1: So what came next to you then after Ben, after that at the restaurant?
0: So while I was working at the restaurant, um, I was buying Ken Wright's wines and... He became a friend of mine and I said hey you know I'd really love to get more firsthand experience rather than just strictly the book knowledge that I have is there any chance I could do a Harvest internship with you and that was in 2004 and he said yes and thankfully Um, and I really enjoyed the experience and at the end of Harvest um, we chatted about the opportunity to work together full time and me moving to the Valley. And uh, I really appreciated it because I was like, man, I'm concerned, like I, I only have book knowledge, I've never done this before. And his take was that he cared more about the character and integrity of the people that worked with him and for him than he cared about the knowledge and that it was kind of a, another level of education to gain that firsthand experience under his and his team's guidance you know he has a remarkable team as well so um that was a great opportunity tell me
1: about your first harvest experience
0: um it was eye-opening period i mean the amount of work leading up to it is equal if not greater than the amount of work during it and then things drop off a precipice and it gets really quiet you know um So I was there, I think, for a month in 2004, and I got to... I would go over on weekends beforehand and, like, deal with sampling or washing barrels or racking or whatever, and then, um, you know, I had to go back to the restaurant, what have you, Um, but it was eye-opening, and all this stuff that I had um, gained knowledge of in books all of a sudden, like, clicked, and I was like, oh, that's racking, oh, that's sediment, oh, that's crystallization, oh, like, that's new French oak versus neutral French oak, or, like, all this stuff that you read about, but you don't really have that first-hand experience, just really opened my eyes. What
1: made you want to keep doing
0: it? I loved everything about it, period. Also, aside from Harvest, the pace of it was so different than what I was used to in the restaurant world. The restaurant world, your transaction is like, not like that, but it's a pretty quick transaction. Um, You know, I was bartending and managing the bar and running the wine program. So like, it was this very fast paced thing. And then winemaking, it was like, whoa, everything's gonna be a year, you know? And you're looking at everything in this cycle of at least a year and it changes how you work and how you see things. And again, that goes back to the idea of risk that I was talking about. There's just so much investment, time, energy, money, all of it, that it's remarkable to me.
1: So when you, after the internship, when you came back to work for Ken, tell me about the role you had to to start out.
0: Well, initially, um, he, I was, living in Savoia Vineyard. I don't know if you're familiar, but in the Yamhill Carlton AVA. And so since I was in the vineyard, we kind of started with this role of me helping with tractor work and then part-time in the winery. And I don't know if he decided or if I suggested, but tractor work was not my forte. And so I liked being in the winery too and it kind of lent more to my experience, just palette, production, understanding all of that side of the wine versus the farming side, which I really didn't have any experience with whatsoever. Um, and so I slowly transitioned into just being in the winery. So, um, yeah.
1: And so I, I, as your kind of role developed there and your knowledge developed there, were there, there parts of the work that you enjoyed most or or, or opposite of that, look, did not look forward to most?
0: Um, there was nothing that I did not look forward to. I loved my experience. I loved my time working with Ken and his team. Um, there, yeah, I guess that, that's a success story, right? If you can go to work every day and feel that way. Um, things that excited me, I just kept learning, you know? Um, Ken would do a lot of experimentation. Um, there was a lot of development of vineyards and kind of still going into the vineyard all different times of the year you see so much and you learn so much about farming and vine growth and grape health and what have you Um, and then on the winery side of things I mean I loved it all literally Um, once the wines it was just fun to see every new vintage how it expressed why it expressed that way and then to witness how it developed you know honestly managing fermentations during harvest I loved because it was just like Maybe it went back to my bartending days where the transaction was quicker. And so you're seeing this this product transform from grape to wine over the course of, you know, two to three weeks to two weeks to however long the fermentation might last. Um, but that was always remarkable to me. And again, still learning, still eye-opening in terms of like, oh, that's what's contributing that, or this is that compound or yeah.
1: So at this point, did you were you thinking long-term in anything? Were you thinking that winemaking was something you wanted to do or winery ownership was something you wanted to do? Were you, yeah, for sure. Was that what, was that what you were planning that to was, do? That
0: was where I was going with it. Um, it was definitely something I was interested in. The prospect would have been purchasing fruit. You know, there was no, I didn't have the means or the interest really in owning vineyards. Um, but it was something... You know, I picked Ken's brain about a little bit, but, um, eventually moving to Portland changed my course, and so that kind of fell by the wayside, but it's definitely something that I miss, period. I loved the opportunity to work in winery, to be in the vineyards all the time. I did a harvest in New Zealand, um, during that stint, and so, and yeah we were traveling we'd go up at the time Ken had Tyra 7 too so we'd go down to Southern Oregon and up to Walla Walla and Red Mountain and um still having that experience to be exposed to so much so many different regions and parts of the industry
1: it's amazing
0: yeah it's great but there's so much to it right with with on the winemaking side in particular that's really all I can speak to but talking to coopers, going to cooperages, and, and seeing that whole process and how much is involved with that. Um, and everything from like, you know, developing a relationship with the glass supplier and like talking about how important that is, or closures, and Ken at the time was with Noma Cork, um, but at the same time, Noma Cork was doing a lot of evolution. And so we'd always do different experiments with that or experiments with native yeast versus um, commercial yeasts or just really always kind of feeling things out and trying to figure out the whys, the whys, the hows, the whens.
1: I'm curious about your, your New Zealand experience. How, how was it, how did it compare to Oregon harvest?
0: It was quite different. Um, it was great. It was at a winery called Atarangi in Martinborough on the North Island. And, um, Ken offered a great opportunity for me and one of his uh, vineyard managers to go over and work harvest with them. And the biggest difference I would say is they worked with a lot of white wine and a lot of white varietals that we didn't at Ken Wright. You know, it's predominantly Pinot Noir, a little bit of Pinot Blanc or Chardonnay or some of the Rhone-style varietals that we were doing for Tire 7 at the time. But just working with Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris and all these varietals, I was floored to see how much work goes into white wine production and how they don't garner the same price points and stature as red wines. So that was kind of remarkable. Um, But also stylistically as a winery, Aturangi has a lot of different operations than we had at Kenwright. And so I learned a lot and it was a pretty exceptional experience. But again, another kind of small family-run operation, small team, and everybody was all hands-on with everything, and it was a, another great experience to have over there.
1: So between obviously between your, your work in the industry, your in production part of the industry, and your work on the other side of the industry, you've come across a lot of different wines, a lot of different wine styles, a lot of different yeah. vineyard practices, a lot of different things, so I'm curious along the way, have you developed what you would consider like a winemaking philosophy? Have you developed a philosophy of how wine should be, should be grown or made or how you would do it if you were doing it?
0: I mean, I think that's been an evolution for me, for sure. Having had that kind of book knowledge and then working with Ken and really learning about winemaking through his eyes and what he had, you know, at the time, he had been making wine for almost as long as I had been alive. Um, and so from there... Now, having worked for importers and such and traveled to here pretty extensively, um, I've seen a lot of different things. And currently my, my, my take is the more hands off, the better, the less intervention, the better. Um, so many people spend so, mu- so much of their energy and resources in farming that I don't understand manipulating it seems to do it injustice to all the effort that was put in the prior eight to ten months of the year, you know. Um, and so that's, for me, kind of where you get into an authenticity of place and product is where there's less intervention. And so a big thing, I used to be a little bit dogmatic about it, and um, I've learned that that doesn't really pay. because it just doesn't. Um, and so I'm not dogmatic about it, but that's the, that's where I lean, um, with all of my preferences in terms of seeing somebody's principles of farming or winemaking, and then also the finished product. So. So you mentioned
1: the the move to Portland, kind of changing, changing plans. Unexpected, Unexpected,
0: huge, huge, unexpected change of plans and changing course. Um, Yeah, it was really a bittersweet day when I realized, you know, I I did the commute for like three weeks or something. And I was like, this is gonna kill me. I can't do this. And there's tons of people that do it all the time and more power to them. Um, I just couldn't do it. And so it was totally unexpected, but it was going to break me, I'm pretty sure. And so I had to have a really hard conversation with Ken and neither of us were happy about it. Um, But it was just something I had to do because wasn't going to move back to McMinnville, um, and I couldn't do the commute every day, so, um, and Ken and I stayed great friends and still are to this day, um, but yeah, kind of that unexpected move, or that move, I didn't realize would shift my, my course entirely in the wine industry,
1: so... So tell me about that, once when, when you made that decision, what, what did you think was next? What, what, what was the plan?
0: Well, I had heard there was um, a distribution company at the time called Triage, and a couple of people were leaving and they had reached out to me, and it was kind of really um, happenstance timing that it was when I was like, I can't do this commute anymore. And I, had, I was new to Portland, and I had never sold wine before, and so it was, I don't wanna say daunting, but definitely a a little bit of a precipice for me to jump off of, you know? Um, And so it was a really steep learning curve to learn the city, learn the businesses and what they were doing and the people doing it and why, and then to learn this whole portfolio of wines when I had had basically a cellar palette for the last five years, you know? Um, So yeah, it was a steep, steep learning curve.
1: So as you started to learn it, what were the, what were the, were there kind of like moments for you, milestone moments for you where you thought like, oh, that's, that makes sense. I I got this now. Or like, were there parts where you started to fit in and you started to feel like it was a place for you?
0: For sure. I mean, this portfolio at the time that I'm referring to, Triage, was a pretty remarkable book. Um, again, they had a stellar A-team of, of people working with them and running the company. Um... It also got me back into studying international wines again after having just focused on Oregon for so long. I had to kind of dig deep again and, and really step to that side of things. But portfolios like um, the Dresner portfolio or the Wasserman portfolio or the Calder portfolio, um, there were all these really remarkable importers that they were working with that gave me confidence to walk in anywhere and know that I could stand behind the wines that I was representing. And I think that's a big thing that I've endeavored to carry to this day, Mm -hmm. where anybody I work for is going, there's going to be kind of an alignment of principles in terms of the farming and the winemaking and who the people are doing what they do. Mm
1: -hmm. So having seen the distribution from from the other side previously, I'm curious what, what what was it like for you what, what struck you about it and what, what did you find was successful ah
0: uh, it's interesting that's a great question um still figuring that out <laughs> <laughs> um no I think one of the biggest things was just really understanding how much wine is out there it's a very competitive um world and that's not a bad thing but there's all different reasons styles and and um yeah, reasons behind the wines that are out there. Mm -hmm. And so it's remarkable to see what fits in where and why. Um, Relationships still go a long way, of course, but it was more about the wines and the producers. And so, yeah, there's not knocking on anybody's program, but there's some retail programs where it's, you know, a lot of really affordable wines, and those, to be that affordable, those wines might be produced in a given way. And then there's wines that might be, from the same region, the same varietal, but they're, they sit here, right, on, on, a, on a tier of quality, and it's, it's just different. And so knowing that I could stand behind the wines that I was walking into gave me, gave me that confidence to go chat with anybody, you know? But it was also another epiphany was just like how different um, buyers might be depending on their needs, depending on their personalities, depending on their business. Um, and that was something I had never seen before, you know, having worked in, in restaurants and the sommelier thing and then in the vineyard and winery. So that was kind of eye-opening for me, if you will.
1: What did you find to be the the sort of the, the best educational strategies for yourself? Obviously, you're inheriting this huge portfolio of wines. How do you educate yourself on what you have and... and And most importantly, where it will fit potentially in the sales.
0: I mean, honestly, I guess I'm dating myself with this because I went from when I was studying for the court, it was all textbooks and then there's websites. (laughs) So it's funny. There probably were back then too, but I just wasn't, it was new or something, Um, but it was a much more digital experience. And then, like I said, the team at triage, there's a gentleman named Josh Siegel who was managing uh, the market at the time, and he was a great influence and kind of a mentor to me as I was learning the ropes. He really taught me a lot about the who's, why's, and how's of sales, you know, and that stuff's important. And it was great to have a mentor like that to kind of go to and lean on, and he, yeah, kind of tutored me into it. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so well, after triage, uh, what has what come next?
0: Well, I bounced around for a hot second, Um, so Triage unfortunately dissolved. Um, The partnership that existed fell apart, and so that was less than ideal, because I was only there for like eight months or something. Um, And so I went to work for another distributor called Venom, which was a much bigger company with a much more broad, um, maybe not broad portfolio, but different focus than Triage and you know again there was a, a great team of people and it's funny to look back at these times and think about who's where now you know um, and so venom you know it helped me to continue to build relationships in the market and um, it was good but it wasn't the best fit for me so for a hot second I stepped back into the restaurant world but it wasn't um, like a full-on restaurant there's a let's Unfortunately, it's gone due to COVID times, but it was called the Cheese Bar and it's a gentleman named Steve Jones and he focused on being a cheesemonger. And he asked me if I'd like to figure out a little wine selection in there with his crew. And so I kind of stepped back into the hospitality world. Um, And at that point, and I'm just gonna keep going with that if that's okay. um, There was a gentleman when I was working there, this French guy named Olivier Rochelois. And he was just starting his own importing business, direct importing from France. And I just fell in love with the wines. And the first day he came to see me, he had like eight wines um, total in his portfolio, it was tiny. And he was a one man show and everything was small family wineries. And so I just started supporting him, bringing in all these wines, because there was great value and the farming was done well. And I just love the wines and they did really well in a cheese shop as well because they're great food wines. And eventually over the course of buying wine from him for I don't know how long, um, he decided he wanted to hire someone and asked me to be his first employee. And so I stepped to that and that was my position for the last. So I started there in 2013 and I'm still working with him now. Um, My role changed a little bit as I moved to Bend but I had the opportunity to work with him and manage that business um, in conjunction with him for, you know, seven years, six and a half years, and now I'm in Bend uh, selling the So.
1: So you mentioned that when you started working with Olivier, uh, very small to start with. So how how has it grown, and what what is your role been in the, in the growth?
0: So. Olivier, as I mentioned, is from Paris um, and he wanted to kind of connect his home here in Oregon with his home and with his roots in France. Um, So he was going over to France quite a bit, both to see family and to explore wine regions. And then I started traveling with him and, you know, over the course of time um, we built the book dramatically, you know, to this day we probably work with, I don't know, roughly... 80 producers in france and then we built a little italian portfolio as well and so i'd say we probably have about 20 20 to 25 italian producers um but the book is still heavily french um with a little bit of italian for 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 good okay. reason yeah exactly <laughs> um but yeah it's grown pretty dramatically um we've explored working with other importers um and we're still doing that today but it continues to evolve
1: so what are the what are when you're choosing someone to work with choosing a winery to work with what are are there certain benchmark qualities
0: oh yeah i mean there's there's a lot going back to your question about like meeting people and what does it change or going back to my answer about being dogmatic um in general the principles have to be there the authenticity of the people and the what and why of their farming and winemaking, um and then going again how does it fit what we're doing what we're offering to the market um so you kind of go into each of those meetings really open and then everything kind of fits itself in if you will Mm -hmm. where you're like well this fits this fits this fits this fits and these are the reasons why or it doesn't for whatever reason and it can go both ways too right it's not just all on us, The producers, obviously, are looking out for what they want, expect, and need. Um, and so we've really worked hard to make sure it's a good fit for everybody. And I think that comes through in the wines.
1: So. You mentioned uh, before the interview, obviously, that you, you'd moved back to Bend and that mm-hmm. the timing was not a coincidence. So tell, tell me about, obviously, 2020 as we do interviews, sort of post-2020, it's interesting to see how 2020 has affected people. So, so, so tell us about that. Yeah,
0: I mean, it was dramatic. I was moving back to Bend. I was planning on moving back to Bend just as COVID hit and then COVID hit. And it was like, okay, we're on doing this. Um, and it felt good. I'd been revisiting Bend forever. You know, I was still selling wine over there once or twice a month. And so it was still, still have a family of friends and it still felt like home. No, even though I'd been gone for 15 years. Um, but when COVID hit, you know, it was a challenging time to be the new guy in the market with these new portfolios. Um, so I also worked with two other small portfolios because I couldn't make ends meet just on these uh, niche French wines from Petit Monde over in a smaller community. And so I worked with a company called PDX Wines Um, which is remarkable and then a company called Lone Wolf um, which is a great portfolio as well and so I think uh, I think it was just crazy to witness how much COVID impacted business for better and for worse for different people you know all of a sudden retail is doing more business than they would do on a holiday week you know all the time every week and restaurants were just really having a hard time it was also remarkable, I think, to witness how people pivoted, how people decided they were going to make it work, um, and how resourceful people could get with what they were trying to offer and why. So it's, uh, yeah.
1: But from, from your perspective, obviously, you mentioned the restaurants and retail and, and the massive shifts for them. So from you being on the distribution side, how do you adjust to that? And how do you make it work? How did you pivot?
0: Uh, it was really interesting you know it it just changed how I did my job and when I did my job and you know you were talking about doing these archives during COVID and you're wearing masks and thank you for that but like traveling is different and your ability to actually be with people is different and for a long time I wasn't going into any accounts period um And then I started like handing out little vial samples instead of pouring wine for them and dropping them off with some technical information, which felt really detached and disjointed. You know, it's not why I do what I do. Um, But you had to do what you, you had to get through it, right? And still get wines out there and let people know that business is still happening. And so.
1: So now we're looking at 2022, we're two years in. Uh, How have you readjusted things since? And and are there changes you've made that you see staying that way?
0: I mean, I think the biggest thing is, I feel like even though we're still in the midst of COVID, it's not past us by any means, things have shaken out to an extent where there's a little bit more consistency. The consistency is not constant (laughs) but it feels more stable than it felt in 2020, 2021. Um, Speaking of Oregon wine, I mean this is a tangent but you know, the 2020 vintage was interesting and so that was interesting to see how people pivoted there too. Uh, Got to learn a lot and see a lot and understand a lot more Um, but for me, pivoting, I feel like there's a little bit more consistency. People feel a little bit better. Um, you know, Obviously, there's tons of people that are still struggling and um, people that might not have made it through the pandemic with their businesses. But on the flip side of that, there are people that have persevered and have been able, for whatever reason, to come through this. And I think people see the light right now instead of a lampshade, if you will. And so, uh, yeah.
1: Okay. So let's talk about the future a little bit. Let's start, start the future for you. Obviously, uh, a lot of different things going on for you and a recent move. What do you see as you look ahead for yourself and for your work?
0: Well, right now, something that's really dynamic um, is Bend is just growing exponentially. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for various businesses there. Um, but there's just a lot of interest there going back to Oregon Wine um, Oregon Wine is really dynamic right now more so I think than when I first got into it 20 some odd years ago and so again it's kind of like I'm engaged with how dynamic everything is and that's that's uh, keeps me going it keeps me really happy with, with what I'm doing you know um, I'm not going to be a salesperson forever so it's Interesting to think about what those next steps that you're asking about might be. Um, but for the time being, I'm only almost two years back in Bend, and I like to kind of have a long-term building, if you will. Um, and so for for the next few years, at least, I'll be doing what I'm doing and kind of witnessing how things change, both on the winemaking side and the Oregon scene, and the retail and restaurant side of things in the Bend. and And I work in Eugene as well, Um, but I'm based in Bend, so in the two markets. Um,
1: You mentioned, obviously, the the changes in the industry uh, since you've been a part of it. Tell me about what what Oregon Wine looks like now to you versus when you kind of first impressed it 20 years ago.
0: I mean, I think there's a lot more players in the game at this point. Um, A lot of people have kind of seen the potential in Oregon. And I think that's not a one-dimensional potential either, right? So you have people, whether it's Jeffy or Chad Stock or, or uh, Tyler, and making not just your classic Pinot Noir, like playing with different varietals, playing with different styles of winemaking, experimenting more. Um, I think with climate change, you're going to see that too, more plantings of other varietals. and. Who knows, we might find varietals that are even more suited to what is becoming than Pinot Noir, you know? Um, that's my take, at least.
1: And so as you look ahead then, is that you, do you, see, you foresee more of the same? Do you, do you have, I mean, the growth in the industry since you've been in it is astronomical. Yeah. Do, you, do you see more of that? I
0: don't, I, I can't imagine it being sustainable, to be honest. It's such a competitive industry. And there's only so much land out there that if people are being, are having integrity about where they're planting and how they're farming, then there's a limitation to what we can accomplish. When you get into these other varietals, I think there you open doors to where you are going to see more options on the table, more people playing with different things, more styles of wine coming out of Oregon than we've known historically. Um, which is exciting to me, you know, because we don't, nothing against Pinot Noir, but we don't need to be like a one trick pony type thing. You know, I think there's a lot of potential and the more people are experimenting, the more people are endeavoring to explore, the more we're going to see quality wines that are maybe outside the box of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think diversification in our industry on all levels should be welcome um, from farming to winemaking to finished products
1: so a theme we've heard in a lot of our interviews from people on the other side from you from from people trying to sell their own wines is the change in distribution uh, over the years obviously as, uh, since since you've been a part of it and before distribution has changed quite a bit so yeah. I'm, I'm curious what you see for the for the future of wine distribution, especially coming out of a pandemic eventually, possibly, and for the future of sort of wine sales in general?
0: That's a great question, first of all. Um, I think my particular perspective is different because I'm working in smaller communities with Eugene and Bend versus here, so I can't speak to Portland and what's happening in distribution here. Um, over. You know, you've seen a consolidation. You've seen larger companies buying smaller ones. And at the same time, you've seen a lot of, there's a lot of competition within the small guys, people that wanna have their own entrepreneurial business and there's a good reason for it. And these are the ones they believe in and they're gonna put in the work and and make a go of it, you know? And so I know enough of those people to know they're not gonna go anywhere. But at the same time, it's a very competitive industry, and so there has gotten to be a bit of a corporate, big business um, side of the wine industry that you would be able to speak better about regarding the producers and what they have to say. But it's definitely changed how wines are sold. You know, their reach is so much greater than these small guys, and they have the resources to be in tiny towns and satellites or you know, there's, there's trade-offs to everything, right? But how wine is distributed is a pretty big trade-off in terms of what you want your business or how you want your wines represented or where you want your wines to be. And there's a lot of thought that has to go into that, you know?
1: So in terms of, in terms of the consolidation of distribution, is that, is that gonna continue? I mean, that, do you see that, is that gonna be more of the same? I feel like it is,
0: yeah, period. Um, I don't see anything letting up anytime soon, you know, it seems like, uh, there's, I mean, I just said there's a bunch of the small distributors out there and there are, but there's definitely, I don't want to say power, but more, more power in these larger distributors and they're just keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching. And there's, you know, that's, that's what they do and, it's just a different, a different business paradigm, you know? Um, but I don't see that changing at all. And honestly, I hope that it does because I think the individuality and the experience changes when it gets into a more commodity-type environment versus a personal experience interchange and transaction, you know?
1: So for a wine industry like Oregon, where so many of the producers are small very small it's worrying how does that how does that affect their it's really future?
0: it's really worrying to me I would be worried um because when you get into these big portfolios like on one hand it's great they have resources your bills are paid you know your wines have a broad expanse but on the other hand you become lost in a sea of wine you know and there isn't necessarily the same practicum of knowing the people that are selling your wine or the people that are selling your wine have your back and there's a reason for that you know mm-hmm. and so um personally i can't always say oh, however long i'll be selling wine it'll always be in a smaller portfolio um because i think that's that interpersonal relationship on all, both sides of the transaction is critical mm-hmm. you know so
1: So someone would ask you for your advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry in any any role, any element, what would your advice be?
0: I mean, honestly, it's still the same. I have the same thought that I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, where it's still a small community and a tight-knit community. And so when you get involved with whether it's an internship or whether it's a wine bar in the Valley or whether it's, um, there's a lot of ways to kind of get your foot in the door and it really opens a lot of other doors. And so I think that first-hand experience is definitively um, critical, but it's also welcome here. Mm -hmm. There's still a great camaraderie and group of people, and even though it's competitive in terms of wine availability or or placements or whatever, um, I think, in general, people are just trying to keep raising the bar on what Oregon is producing, and so there's a lot of opportunity, and I think now, more so than 20 years ago, there's different opportunities, right? And so there's, there's more opportunity, perhaps, because the industry has grown.
1: All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered?
0: No, I think, uh, you had great questions. So thank thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks again for the consideration and your time. I really appreciate it.
1: And thank you for the same. We appreciate your time and your stories and your, and your candor. And, uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Sounds great. Thank you both. Thank
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.